0: Philippians 3, 1 to 11, hear the word of the Lord. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Let's pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I know very little about shepherding animals, uh, but I do know from Psalm 23 that the shepherds use some instruments. Psalm 23 mentions your rod and your staff. And apparently shepherds use rods and they use staff. The staff is longer, has a, a crook on it, and uh, the, uh, the rod is shorter and thicker. And the little I know about it is they use those for a couple of different reasons. On the one hand, they use them to guide the sheep, to prod the sheep. They use them on that uh, that same side to rescue the sheep. So they they use them in favor of the sheep, but they also use them to beat the life out of any predators that would get near the sheep. And so these mild, gentle shepherds take these instruments and they use them for lethal purposes when necessary, when the predators get near to their flock. Well, um, we have a, a transition that shows up in this text today. Because up to this point, we have heard Paul, the gentle shepherd of the people of God. And he has been prodding, he has been guiding, he has been encouraging them. And then all of a sudden, he wheels around and takes his rod and begins beating the life out of some predators that were getting near to the Philippian believers. And the transition is startling here. And of course, it has left interpreters kind of scratching their heads up to this point. It's been so positive. And then he says in verse one, finally, my brothers rejoice in the Lord. And uh, there's been this constant theme of joy and rejoicing throughout this letter. And then he says to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is a safe for you, which really goes with what follows. And then he launches into look out for the dogs. Look out for the evil workers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Well, what's going on here? Well, there was a threat, a potential threat. There were problems in the church, but there was a potential threat that was a threat that followed Paul wherever he went. And what we find here is this rejoice in the Lord. Some scholars think that this is an aborted conclusion that he was about to wrap things up, and he said, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. And then it occurred to him that he better warn them against some bad dudes that were going to cause problems in the church. Uh, Others look at this and say, Rejoice in the Lord. And in order to rejoice in the Lord, in order that no one steal your joy, I need to warn you against some bad characters that could steal your joy by leading you into falsehood. But however that may be, I want you to notice one thing about this, or a couple things about this command to rejoice in the Lord. It's, it's not the first mention of joy. We've seen men joy mentioned throughout this letter, but now we have joy as a commandment. Commandment. And we will find that again in, verse, in chapter 4, that he will repeat it twice. A commandment. Christians, you are commanded to rejoice. It is an, a Christian duty, a Christian obligation to rejoice. Now, If it's an obligation and it's a command, then we need to understand that it is not just a feeling. Because feelings are not so easy to command, are they? Feelings are responses to things. But rejoicing is an activity. It is an activity. So this is an activity that Christians are commanded to engage in. And in addition to that, for the first time, we have the bedrock of our rejoicing. Up to this point, we have seen that rejoicing or joy has depended on, in some degree, favorable circumstances. So Paul says that, that uh, you complete my joy by being unified, and I'm sending Epaphroditus to you so that when you seek him, you will be able to rejoice again. And so in some measure, we have seen that our joy depends on our relationships with each other. But we've said in some measure up to this point, and we've hedged that to some degree because there is a bedrock of joy. And we get to that here. I won't spend a lot of time on it today because we'll get back to it in in greater measure in chapter four. But he says here, rejoice in what? In the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. And now we find that immovable rock on which Christians can and must our joy. There is a a degree to which our joy comes and goes. It it waxes and wanes. It increases. It decreases. But there is a bedrock joy that Christians may and must pursue that is in the Lord. Because the Lord is immovable. The Lord is unchangeable. What the Lord, which is Jesus Christ, what the Lord has done for us by dying and rising again, ascending to represent us before the Father, that is does not change Jesus the same yesterday, today, and forever. If you are looking for deep satisfaction, lasting satisfaction, you must find it in that which is deep and lasting. What is deep and lasting? The Lord, who he is, and what he has done for his people. But now getting back to the flow of this text, he says, if, if it's connected here, if it's not an aborted conclusion, he's saying, but there are those who would rob you of joy. And I want to warn you against those. And he says, I've already done that, by the way. He says, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and it's safe for you. He's already told them about these folk. And he says, I'm going to tell you about them again in case they show up. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evil workers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. False teachers. Who are these false teachers? They are these false teachers, if I, can, if I can use the same metaphor, these are the false teachers who dogged Uh, Paul's heels wherever he went. Paul would go into places and he would preach the gospel of of grace, of, of faith in Christ, of salvation as a gift of God. And then some would come in, as we read in, for example, Acts chapter 15, verse 1, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, those whom Paul had evangelized, were teaching the brothers, here's their teaching, Unless you, that is you Gentile Christians, you non-Jewish Christians, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And these folks show up time and time again in the New Testament. They showed up in Corinth. They, they were the main reason that Paul wrote the letter to the Galatians because they had infiltrated the church in the region of Galatia. And now we find that Paul is saying they may get to you. Maybe they already had, but he said they may get to you. And watch out for these folks, look out for these folks. They're often called Judaizers, Judaizers, because they were Jewish believers in Jesus who were trying to turn Gentile believers in Jesus, like all of us, or at least most of us, into Jews by forcing circumcision and other regulations upon Gentiles. Now, this um, this uh, strong language that Paul uses here as he reaches for his his shepherd's rod, and begins to beat the predator is is very clever. It's repetitive. It's look out, look out, look out. So he uses repetition. It is also alliterative. And alliteration is when a sound is repeated. And this is almost impossible to bring out in in a translation. But uh, the word dogs, the word evil, and the word uh, mutilate or mutilation, they all begin with kappa. They always begin with the K sound. So there is a there is a, an alliteration here, which is very, very effective rhetorically. And it's also ironic. It, it's kind of funny, actually, um, because he says, look out for the dogs. Now, um, for us, that sounds very, very, very disrespectful. But what he's doing is he's turning the tables on these folks because... Jews sometimes referred to Gentiles as dogs. Now, you know, in the West, people spend millions and millions and billions of dollars on their dogs. So, so we have a positive idea of dogs. Dogs were, were street scavengers in those days. And so that's how Jews sometimes looked at Gentiles. And so here Paul is turning the tables on these Jews who are trying to turn Gentiles into Jews. And he refers to them as dogs. And then those who are evildoers, these were the ones who actually boasted about how righteous they were. So Paul is saying, no, they're not workers of righteousness. They're workers of evil. And then the last one is a play on the word circumcision. And he says they're preaching circumcision, but actually what they're doing is mutilating Gentiles who are not obligated to be be circumcised. So um, he's, he's, he's actually being kind of funny here in his irony. And then, He seizes the moment and claims for himself and others like him, believers in Christ who are Jews or Gentiles. When he says uh, verse 3, he says, for we, and this we is inclusive, that is we, you you Gentile Philippians who are believers in Christ, and we, Jewish believers uh, in Christ, we are the circumcision. They're the mutilation. They're the mutilation. They're preaching circumcision, but they're the mutilation. We are the circumcision. And what's he saying here? We are Israel. We are the people of God. Those who are believers in Christ, who are Jewish or Gentile, we are the true Israel. We're the circumcision. And then he describes who worship. And this this word, it has to do with temple worship. Who, Who perform temple worship, no longer in a physical temple, But by the spirit of God, we also are those verse four who or verse three, rather who glory or boast in Christ Jesus. Now, now hold on to that word, boast glory, who glory, who boast, who exalt in Christ Jesus. And then he says, in contrast with boasting in Christ Jesus, the opposite is putting confidence in the flesh. And he says, we don't put any confidence in the flesh. We boast in Christ Jesus. We don't boast in the flesh. So what does boasting mean? It means to put confidence in. It means to exalt in. It means to rely upon. It means to, in this context, to rejoice in, to rejoice in, to exalt in, because it's the opposite of uh, confidence in the flesh. So it's confidence in Christ, glorying in Christ, rather than confidence in the flesh. So, he says, "That's who we are." So what he does is he, he turns the tables on these folks, and he 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 ironically he flips the flips everything around, and he says, "We're the actually we're the ones who are the the, the true Israel," and these are the, these are the characteristics of the true Israel. The true Israel does not boast in the flesh. The true Israel boasts in Christ. But then he says, kind of amusingly as well, "But if you want to play that game, if you want to go there." You, you Judaizers, if you want to do that, count me in. I'll play that game if you want. If you want to talk about boasting in the flesh, game on. Let's talk about boasting in the flesh. Because he says, we don't boast in the flesh. That is in fleshly characteristics, human, merely human characteristics. But he says, though, verse four, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. And then he says, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Gloves are coming off here. He say, you want to talk about confidence in the flesh? You want, to, you want to boast in accomplishments, in Jewish accomplishments? Let's go. Let's go. Lay it out. Let, t- show me what you got, and I will show you what you got. You want to see a slam dunk coming? Here it comes, okay? And what he talks about are seven characteristics. Seven characteristics of his boast and by the way this was his boast he's not making this up this was paul's glory this was paul's boasting this was paul's confidence before he was a christian so he knows of what he speaks he's not making this up he was in their situation and more so and he mentions seven characteristics the first four characteristics have to do with what paul received The last three characteristics have to do with what Paul achieved. So what he received and what he achieved. Let's look at the list. Verse 5. What he received. Circumcised on the eighth day according to the law. That's what the law required of Jewish boys. And by the way, that means that he was not a later convert because they would have been circumcised later. He was circumcised as a native Jew. Of the people... Of Israel, not of another people brought into Israel, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. Now that cuts in a couple of different ways. If a Gentile wanted to become a Jewish convert, he could become a Jewish convert, but he could never become part of one of the tribes. The only way to be one of the tribes is born, to be born in that tribe. He was born, and also Benjamin, if you go back in Jewish history, it was a respected tribe. Jerusalem was located in the territory of Benjamin. And Benjamin was the one tribe that remained loyal to David when the the other ten tribes took off. So it was a respected tribe of the tribe of Benjamin. And then he sums it up by saying, a Hebrew of Hebrews. A Hebrew to the max. A a, a pure Hebrew. And that sums up what he received. He didn't do any of this. This is what he received from his heritage. But then he said, I added to it. I took what I received and I built on. He said, as to the law, and here we get into his achievements, a Pharisee. Now, what's a Pharisee? A Pharisee was a very strict observer of the law. And, and we often have a negative view of Pharisees uh, because, of, because of the denunciation of their abuses. But they were very strict in their observance of the law. And uh, Paul says, I was I signed up for the, the, the toughest. I signed up for the Green Berets. I signed up for the Rangers of the, the Jewish uh, religion. I was doing the toughest of the toughs, the hardest of the hard as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal. Do you want to know how zealous I was? Well, I, I heard about this as he thought he was an imposter Messiah who formed a church. And so what did he do? When he considered Jesus to be an imposter, he went after his followers. And we read about that in Acts. He persecuted them unto imprisonment and even unto death. So his zeal was not lacking. And then he summed this up. A persecutor of the church as to righteousness under the law or in the law, he says, blameless, blameless. Now, elsewhere, we know that Paul was not, he didn't consider himself sinlessly perfect. But he was blameless in the, sense of, in the sense of no one could blame him for anything. No one could ever look at Paul and say, Ah, Paul, <laughs> you slipped up there. You, you say you follow the law, but no, look at that. You didn't do that. No one could point out anything in Paul's observable life about which they could blame him. This is a remarkable pedigree. And he says, This was my boast. So if you want to boast... I could boast more than you did, and I did boast more than any of you. And then he turned. In verse 7, he says, But but whatever gain I had, and here he uses accounting counting kind of language. These were all in the, in the positive column, I thought. All of these things, these were my, my gains. These are my assets, but whatever gain I had, whatever assets I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And then he, he ramped it up. Indeed. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. So he said, on account of Christ, all of that, all of that boast, I came to regard all of those boasts, all that I had received, all that I had achieved, I came to count it as, as rubbish, as, as not an asset, but a liability, as not a, a positive, but as a negative. He didn't only... Consider them a loss, but he actually lost them. He said, I gave them up, I lost them. He didn't consider them only to be a loss, but this is translated here rubbish. Could be ref, ref, uh, rubbish, or it could be refuse, or it could be actually like in the King James, it could be dung, manure. Um, and, and he says, That's that's what I now how I look at all those things in which I used to boast. He considered that they were not merits, but demerits. Now, why? They became that for him because he realized that they didn't lead him toward Christ. They kept him from Christ. And so they were not assets. They were liabilities. He could not have those and have Christ at the same time. So in order to gain Christ, he needed to lose his boasts. In order to gain Christ, He had to lose all of those things that he thought were his positives before God. And he realized that his boasts kept him from Christ. You see, that's how it is with everyone. This isn't just Paul's story. This is everybody's story. Inasmuch as we think we have something from our heritage or from our achievements that commend us to God... To that degree, we are keeping ourselves from Christ. You see, we cannot have at the same time our own boasts and Christ. We need to give up one to have the other. Uh, I remember reading about a custom in it was by a missionary. I don't remember who it was, but it was somebody in our mission agency. And he was in Africa and he talked about how in, in his culture, if you gave someone a gift, they had to receive it with both hands. It's rude to receive it with only one hand. So if somebody gives you a gift, you you give you receive it with both hands. And so what they would do to, to express this, they would put together two books. And, and one of the books said, my sin, like on the spine. And the other book said, my righteousness on the spine, my good deeds on the spine. And they would hand that. And the, the person would receive it with two hands and have... This package of my sins and my righteousness, my accomplishments, my good deeds. And then they would take another book that was called Christ or Christ's righteousness and say, oh, I have something else for you. Now that person's in a predicament. Why? Because his hands are full. And so he needs to do one of two things. He can't put it in one hand and then receive with the other hand this gift because that would be rude. And so what does he have to do? He has to lay aside his sin, and he has to lay aside his righteousness in order to receive the righteousness of Christ. We're the same way, folks. We boast about our heritage. We do this sort of thing all the time. It may be something as silly as down here. Oh, I was actually born in Florida. Uh, Is that something you have accomplished? And even so, is that a big deal? Right? Or we say things like, well, I wasn't raised that way. Um, Did you raise yourself or was that a gift? Or we boast about our achievements. But boasting about what we received is silly because we did exactly nothing to receive it. And boasting about our accomplishments is silly as well because our accomplishments are based on what we received. You say, well, I, I won this athletic competition. And the athletic ability, where did you get that? You received that. That was a gift. I, I just graduated from whatever, and I got highest honors. Great. Where would you get that intelligence that enabled you to do that? So even our achievements are, in some sense, a gift. So it's silly to boast in these things, and it's dangerous. Because boasting in anything, anything that we've received or achieved, and particularly in the, in the spiritual realm, as if these things that we've received from our forebears and achieved in our own lives somehow commends us to God and puts us toward the front of the line. It's dangerous because we can't have Christ and our boasts at the same time. You see, Paul said, I had to lose all of this. My boasts kept me from Christ. I had to give them up. I had to count them dung. I had to count them as street refuse in order to gain Christ. And look at verse 9. He says, Rubbish, verse 8, in order that I may gain Christ. And be found in him. Notice that there's a shift in voice there, isn't it? I lost. I gained. And what does it mean to gain? It means to be found. To be found in him. So now, to be found means somebody else put me there, right? I'm found in Christ. And it's not entirely clear if he's talking about being presently found in Christ or being found in Christ on the last day. There's a lot of emphasis in Philippians on that last day, that day of judgment. But he says, I want to be found in him. And here he hears the contrast, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And this is one of the clearest verses in terms of this contrast of two types of righteousness. There is the righteousness, our righteousness, that is based on our law keeping, And by the way, that is what most people in the world believe. If they believe in God at all, they believe in some sort of self-righteousness based on some sort of law-keeping. That's what, what virtually every religion is about. That's what the man or the woman on the street, if you ask them what their hope of heaven is, they will most likely give you some version of that. Well, I haven't been that bad. I've tried to keep the golden rule. I've kept the Ten Commandments, which means they've never read the Ten Commandments, if they can say something like that, or they don't know their own part. So so but that's that's somehow hardwired into humanity, our righteousness based on some version of law-keeping. And Paul says that that is antithetical to the other kind of righteousness, the only kind of righteousness that God accepts. And what is that? A perfect righteousness that God gives to us in which we receive by faith, not having my own righteousness based on what I have done, but a righteousness that comes from God. You see, one is a righteousness, which is my gift to God. That's my righteousness. God, look at this. Look at what I've done and, and accept me on the basis of my gift to you. No, the true righteousness is God's gift to us. That God accepts us not on the basis of we, what we give to him, but on the basis of what he gives to us. In Jesus Christ in which we receive by faith and what is faith faith are those two empty hands those empty hands that receive a gift not having my own righteousness but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness if we didn't get it he repeats us the righteousness from God that depends on faith and here's the here's the end game here's the ultimate goal verse 10 that I may know him that I may know him if you're boasting in your own righteousness, you will never know Christ. You can't know Christ if you're boasting in your own righteousness. The only way to know Christ is to give up your own righteousness and trust in him and receive from him his righteousness. Righteousness from the law means establishing our relationship with God based on our observance of the law. Righteousness from God is a gift of a right relationship to God received through faith in Christ. The result is knowing Christ. Knowing Christ. Knowing Christ means, if we go on here, verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Experience the power of his resurrection. And, and here the, the, there's some, some debate among the interpreters about what this means to know the power of his resurrection. Some suggest that it has to do with knowing the power of of his resurrection in our new life. That is to say that we have died to sin and risen to a new life. And Paul talks about that in Romans 6. When somebody says, oh, so it's all a gift of God, right? It's just a gift of righteousness. And so we can go on sinning. Paul says, I'm glad you asked that question. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So how can we experience the power of the resurrection by living a new life free from the sin that dominated us previously? Not sinless perfection, but free from the dominion of sin. Dying to sin, rising to newness of life. And that may be here also in Philippians. If it's not in Philippians, it's in Romans. So, so it's not that this is, this is a, if it's not here, it's not anywhere. It is in Romans, so that is true. But in, here in Philippians, there may be, and there certainly is a stronger focus, and it's this, that we may know the power is resurrection by sharing in his sufferings. Sharing in his sufferings. Where was Paul when he wrote this? where he was in prison he was in prison uh, and he was facing the the trial before Caesar and uh, the Philippians what was happening with them they were being persecuted as well see they were sharing Christ's sufferings they knew what it meant to to suffer for Christ for being Christians and some of them knew what it meant to die for being Christians as Paul eventually did And so that seems to be the focus here. You want to know resurrection power? Well, suffer and die. That's how you know about resurrection. You see, you can't experience resurrection unless you first die. That's how it is with our sin. We must die to sin in order to live in newness of life. We can't experience resurrection power in our lives until we die to sin. But in the same way, we don't really know resurrection power unless we suffer and die. And in this regard, and we've mentioned this before, this is not our fault so not blaming anyone. Uh, and of course, we enjoy the privileges that we have here in the West. But in this regard, we're at, we're at a distinct disadvantage to brothers and sisters around the world today. When we read about the power of the resurrection in, in our lives because of the suffering and deaths we, we experience as Christians, we, it's, it's theoretical for us. And we're at a, a great disadvantage in that regard. Also, frankly... As Western Christians, we have both received so much and, by God's grace, achieved so much in the history of missions in the world that it would be very, very easy for us to boast in what we've achieved and in what we've received. So, even though we're at a disadvantage and regardless of where we live, Or in what sort of circumstances. The circumstances are beyond our control. We need to learn. To lose our boasts. Lose our boasts. In order that we may gain Christ. And know Christ. As the one who died. And as the one who rose. Again. I wasn't able to work. Every hymn in. That I wanted to work in today. But there's another hymn that expresses this beautifully. And it goes like this. Not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul. Not what my toiling flesh has borne can make my spirit whole. Not what I feel or do can give me peace with God. Not all my prayers and sighs and tears can bear this awful load. Thy work alone, O Christ, can ease this weight of sin. Thy blood alone, O Lamb of God, can give me peace within. Thy love to me, O God, not mine, O Lord, to Thee, can rid me of this dark unrest and set my spirit free. Thy grace alone, O God, to me can pardon speak. Thy power alone, O Son of God, can this sore bondage break. I, no other work but Thine, no other blood will do. No strength, save that which is divine, can bear me safely through. I bless the Christ of God. I rest on love divine, and with unfaltering lip and heart, I call this Savior mine. His cross dispels each doubt. I bury in his tomb each thought of unbelief and fear, each lingering shade of gloom. I praise the God of grace. I trust his truth and might. He calls me his. I call him mine. My God, my joy, my light, 'tis tis he who saveth me and freely pardon gives i love because he loveth me i live because he lives let's pray our god we sang it earlier no more my god i boast no more of all the duties i have done i quit the hopes i held before to trust the merits of your son what was my gain i count my loss and nail my glory to his cross oh god forgive us for boasting in what we've received for boasting in what we've achieved and enable us to quit those hopes to lay them aside and to trust only the merits of your son his death his life his resurrection his ascension lord may we gain christ losing our own boasts as rubbish may we gain christ may we know christ and may we express that knowledge of christ through resurrection empowered life today in victory over our sins and if it comes to having to suffer for christ may the power of his resurrection be seen in us we pray in his name amen